Please stand for the readings, reading of our text, after which we will pray God's blessing upon our time. Our text, Matthew 10, 27 through 30. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Thus far, the reading of God's word and all his people said, Let us bow and pray. Father, we give you thanks for this word, for the word in scripture and also the word made flesh. We pray that you would break it for us today so that we might understand, so that we might seek to imitate you and grow in our knowledge and in our faithfulness to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Looking through my hard drive and uh, its assortment of sermons that uh, I have preached over the past quarter century, I find that I am drawn repeatedly to the subject of God's providence. Today will mark another installment on that theme, and I suppose I'm drawn to it because, first, it is a distinctive doctrine of the Reformed faith, of Reformed theology that we embrace, located just downstream of the doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty. And second, I suppose I'm drawn to it because of the remarkable tension that it brings to our earthly and mortal existence as we live out our lives of genuine uncertainty and dreadful insecurity against the backdrop of God's eternal and unchangeable decree, which is perfectly certain and, as I said, utterly unchangeable. All of us struggle. I hope I'm not alone in admitting such with the vicissitudes of life. As I grow older, my trust in God's providence deepens, even as my human fears and anxious thoughts increase. As I watch my elderly parents decline in health and ability, as I have in recent weeks, I unavoidably confront the reality that I also am no longer a young man that the harbingers I feel of declining strength and diminishing abilities are but the advance guard of a gathering horde of fellow infirmities that will not be forestalled with buckets full of centrum silver. Now, in my seventh decade, when I hear the peal of funeral bells, I, to paraphrase John Donne, sin not to know for whom the bell tolls, I know it tolls for me. But the difficulty of this life, or the difficulties of this life, are not limited to physical or mental decline. Indeed, these are the woes that are predictable and all but certain if we live long enough. 
If God grants us sufficient years, we can count on them knocking on our door sooner or later. Most of the difficulties we encounter, though, come out of the blue. And part of the problem in dealing with them results from our lack of preparation for their abrupt arrival. As I consider your various situations, I know few of you who have not experienced serious tribulations and trials that have arisen suddenly and surprisingly. We were made aware just last week of unprovoked offenses suffered by a dear daughter of our congregation and the life-altering repercussions of those offenses upon her and her family. Others of you have suffered from fraud and deception, sometimes also from those within your own family. Others of you have been blindsided by injuries, both minor and major, and by the onset of disease or dementia in those dear to you, or by severe and unmanageable pain, or by the seemingly premature loss of spouses or children, or by crushing humiliation and shame. There is not a question of whether we will encounter hardship and trial, only a question of when. We sit here today on the second Sunday of a new year, a year filled with promise and opportunity, and if we are dutiful, we can expect positive outcomes from our diligent work and study and growth in grace and maturity and understanding. But it's also a year that will be marked by peril. We presumably will see a national election that will be decided by a voting public that increasingly reflects a value system alien to our own. We undoubtedly will experience a year of intensified cultural battles between those who believe God's word is authoritative in all matters and those who believe their own ever-shifting philosophies are authoritative, both for themselves, but especially for you. It does not require a prophet to foresee a year of fiscal irresponsibility and administrative ineptitude on the part of governments of all levels. Among a group this large, we should not be surprised if some experience loss of life or a legitimate loss of trust in and fellowship with others or crippling disease, or injury, or financial, or career setbacks, or the life-changing effects of foolish decisions and sinful actions. Or if we experience the sudden depressurization of a jet airliner we are passengers in due to the evacuation of an emergency exit door at 16,000 or even 30,000 feet. Or a disabled electrical grid caused by broken tree limbs or demand that exceeds the system's generating capacity. It's a year that presents formidable risk and uncertainty. It is another year of life under the sun. And if in Christ we had hope in this life only, as Paul wrote the Corinthians, we of all men are most to be pitied. Thankfully, our hope is not rooted in this life only, or in our own abilities to navigate life's obstacle course, and thus we do not despair. As we attend to our elderly relatives, 
and clean the bedsheets they have soiled, even as they once did for us as infants and toddlers, as we escort them to our car and carefully secure them into the car seat, even as they once did for us, as we feed them from a spoon and hold a cup and straw to their lips, even as they once did for us, as we watch them falter and fade, we do so in hope, knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead, and so also in him shall we all be made alive. Not only do we hope in the resurrection of the dead, but we hope also in the knowledge that Christ reigns at God's right hand and has destroyed or is destroying every rule and every authority and power, and that he must reign until all his enemies are under his feet, including death itself. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. As we contemplate the year ahead, our insecurity arises from the knowledge that we are not sovereign, that things are not going to work out according to our decree. The two-year-olds among us may be under that delusion, but most of us have gotten past that. There's another sermon on shortening the tyranny of two-year-olds, but that is not today's. But even though our decree means very little, and our best laid plans do so oft go astray, we should not think that we live in a world that is not ruled by decree, or that the future is in any sense truly uncertain. It is unknown and uncertain to us as mortal creatures, but it is known and certain to the God who could put all things in subjection under Christ's feet because they were already fully in subjection to him. The God who spoke everything into being from nothing, whose judgments, as Paul wrote the Romans, are unsearchable and whose ways are past finding out, inscrutable, from whom and through whom and to whom are all things and to whom belongs all glory forevermore. Our text from Scripture today is one of the proof texts cited by the framers of the Westminster Standards, both in their chapter on God's providence in the Confession of Faith and in the 18th question and answer of the larger catechism, also concerning God's work, uh, our works of providence. In this passage, Jesus is encouraging his disciples to be bold and fearless in proclaiming the gospel even in the face of persecution. And that it would be better even for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for those who refuse to hear their message. He juxtaposes his authority over their souls and their eternal destiny against the authority of those who may merely kill the body and in numerous cases ultimately did kill these disciples. He asked them, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin. The word translated in the King James Version as copper coin is the Greek word asarian, the coin of least value, worth about one-sixteenth of a denarius. So a sparrow was worth about one-thirty-second of a denarius, or one-thirty-seconds of a day laborer's daily wage. 
It's really not important that we tidally tie down the actual value of uh, Assyrian in today's currencies. Rather, I think Jesus was employing a figure of speech. Sparrows were cheap, of about as little worth as anything one could mention. The point our Lord is making is that even a creature of minimal value, found in considerable numbers, does not fall to the ground apart from the Father's will. Notice the word will here, as in apart from the Father's will. Our Lord did not say that a sparrow does not fall to the ground apart from our Father's knowledge or observation. No, this is much more precise and definite and decretal. A mere sparrow, sold very cheaply, so much so that they come in pairs, does not fall to the ground or the earth apart from the will We might even say the appointment of the Father. Moreover, Jesus next lets his disciples in on a bit of interesting trivia. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. Now guess what? Not a single one of them gets stuck in your brush or falls to the countertop or into the sink or to the floor, or into that pot of frying chicken, without the will or appointment of the Father. And this is not at all due to the computational powers or processing speed of the mind of the Almighty. His knowledge of the actual number of hairs on the head of every human being in the world, almost eight billion of us, is unwaveringly accurate and current, and it is so because his knowledge is perfect and immediate without any need for calculation or a mediating agent. He doesn't need a chip from NVIDIA for this. And his providence is utterly exhaustive and universal, embracing every event that has ever occurred so that there is not anywhere in creation, nor has there ever been, a single scintilla of chance. I recognize that this 10th chapter of Matthew's Gospel has a larger point, and I will get to that in due time as we gather around the Lord's table a bit later, but I want to focus for a few minutes on the doctrine of God's providence, Our fathers in the faith who collaborated to produce the Westminster Standards asked in the 18th question of the larger catechism, what are the works or what are God's works of providence? And they answered, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and all their actions for his glory. Now, let me know if you find any room in there, either for chance or for man's sovereignty. The divines of Westminster did not intend to carve out room for either. The framers of the Heidelberg Catechism also weighed in concerning God's providence, asking, what do you understand by the providence of God? And they answered, thusly, God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby As with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, 
and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things, including, might I add, unwelcome bitter cold snaps, come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. The authors of a third historic reform confession that this congregation embraces, the Belgic Confession, wrote of the providence of God and his government of all things in Article 13th of that great confession. In part, they wrote, We believe that the same good God, after he had created all things, did not forsake them or give them up to fortune or chance, but that he rules and governs them according to his holy will so that nothing happens in this world without his appointment. Nevertheless, God neither is the author of nor can be charged with the sins which are committed. For his power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that he orders and executes his work in the most excellent and just manner. Even then, when devils and wicked men act unjustly. And as to what he does, and as to what he does surpassing human understanding, we will not curiously inquire into farther, farther than our capacity will admit of. But with the greatest humility and reverence, adore the righteous judgments of God, which are hid from us contenting ourselves that we are pupils of Christ to learn only those things which he has revealed to us in his word without transgressing these limits. This paragraph of the Belgian Confession touches on the difficulty we all have when we contemplate God's providence and his decretive will that renders chance an empty and void concept. If nothing happens without his appointment, we project, then aren't our sins and foolish decisions really of his authorship? How could we do otherwise than what God has decreed from all eternity? But before the authors of the Belgian Confession took up this argument, the Apostle Paul addressed it definitively in Romans 9, where he writes concerning Rebecca's two sons that before they were born, not having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. He then writes that the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you, Pharaoh, up that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Paul sums up his lesson on God's sovereignty there, writing, Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. Anticipating the responses of us, human judges, who like to sit in God's seat of judgment, Paul reads our mail in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? 
But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Man always strives to get behind the veil that separates the eternal decree of God, which stands above time and is the product of his counsel only, and our walk through this life in which we make plans and try to carry them out, buffeted by things completely outside our control, but entirely within the providential direction and decree of God to the most minute detail. Let me illustrate. Yesterday morning, after I dropped off Nicole in Dallas to hitch a ride with her sister and Aunt Elizabeth to the Douglas's residence for a baby shower for Sarah Grace, my job was to find breakfast for the Vermilion and Alders young ladies who were catching a 1240 flight from Dallas Love to the capital of Chance, Las Vegas, where they would catch a flight to Spokane and where, coincidentally, you might say, if you didn't understand Providence, they would catch up with Gabe Shipp in his journey back, as well as a classmate from Arkansas. What are the odds? But back to breakfast. I yelped breakfast joints located roughly between the Lake Highlands neighborhood and Love Field and found a variety of options. I chose Oasis Restaurant off of Greenville Avenue without any apparent compulsion and set my course for that oasis. We pulled into the parking lot and all got out, but found not only a line for seats just inside the door, but more importantly, a sign that read, only checks or cash accepted. Well, it's been a few decades since I paid a restaurant tab with anything other than plastic or had enough cash in my wallet for a breakfast for five. So I told the girls we would find another place or just settle with McDonald's. I had seen earlier... Angela's Cafe on the Up app, and it was just a few minutes from Love Field. So we reloaded the car and set off. We pulled into the parking lot, walked inside, and quickly were escorted to a table and presented menus. It turns out that Mexican breakfasts were standard fare at Angela's. And so, <laughs> instead of eggs McMuffin, most of us had migas and tortillas or another Tex-Mex breakfast, except Karis, of course, who had French toast with eggs and sausage on the side. Do you think any of this was not eternally decreed by God? Of course it was. He knew and even had made reservations for us, if you will, at Angela's or Angela's in spite of my subsidiary plan to secure oasis at that or secure uh, nourishment at that oasis of eggs and bacon was my will violated in any of this or did i act completely of my own volition following what i desired most 
according to my own subjective matrix of important information at the time of choosing. And there you are. God's decree was accomplished in every minute detail, and I was completely responsible for my free choice. Would I be right to charge God with responsibility if the jalapenos later took a measure of revenge? (laughs) Not at all. I had ordered the migas. Chance merely appears to be at work in the world, but chance actually is founded in neither Las Vegas nor the lottery nor anywhere else in life. All things come, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Interestingly, Merriam-Webster defines chance as, and I quote, the assumed, impersonal, purposeless determiner of unaccountable happenings. Now, that's rich. The assumed, impersonal, purposeless determiner of unaccountable happenings. Now, this definition, quite accurate from mortal man's perspective, stands in stark contrast to the truth of God's providence, in which nothing is impersonal or purposeless or unaccountable. In Proverbs 16.33, we read, The lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. The apostles of Jesus believe this. And in seeking to replace Judas following his betrayal of the Lord, the remaining 11 had two worthy candidates to consider as the 12th. How then did they decide between Barsabbas and Matthias? As we read in Acts 1, they did so by casting lots and thus giving occasion to God to demonstrate his personal and purposeful will through those means. As you can read in Acts 1, they prayed, saying, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry. As you know, the lot fell to Matthias. What were the odds of that, you ask? Well, the odds were even from man's perspective. But in reality, we must recognize that Barsabbas had no chance at all of being the 12th disciple. God had not decreed it. And the apostles knew that the Lot's decision was from the Lord. Well, let us hear the conclusion of the matter. What are we to make of this doctrine of God's providence? And we didn't touch today because we didn't have time on the very important and downstream doctrines of predestination and election. Be happy to follow up on those uh, uh, in future opportunities. But I do want to sum up the doctrine of God's providence. The authors of the Heidelberg Catechism ask in question 28, What does it benefit us? What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? And they answered, We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, 
And with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. Will we continue to face trial and difficulty? Should we think that because we belong to Christ, our path will be paved with success and every good fortune? No. James put it accurately in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 1 of his letter. And I quote James, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The second paragraph of the Belgian Confessions article on God's providence, I read the first earlier, also is helpful and sums it up. This doctrine affords us unspeakable consolation, since we are taught thereby that nothing can befall us by chance, but by the direction of our most gracious and heavenly Father, who watches over us with paternal care, keeping all creatures so under his power that not a hair of our head, for they are all numbered, nor a sparrow can fall to the ground without the will of our Father, in whom we do entirely trust, being persuaded that he so restrains the devil and all our enemies that without his will and permission... They cannot hurt us. Amen. Will you join me in prayer? Our Father, we give thanks that you watch over us with a paternal care, that you keep all your creatures so under your power that not a hair of our head nor a sparrow can fall to the ground without your will. We trust you. And we pray that you would grant us understanding of your providence and a constant awareness of your care over us and loving kindness toward us so that we grow in our knowledge of you and trust in you even to the degree that we truly count it all joy. When we encounter trials and tests of our faith, you are our confidence and security and there is none greater. Thank you for loving us and receiving us in Christ in whom we pray. Amen. I mentioned earlier that there was a larger point in our text from Matthew 10. The passage we read concerning God's providence actually is subordinate to the larger point of this chapter in announcing that God's will encompasses cheap sparrows and numbered hares. Jesus is not showing off or thumping his chest over God's omniscience and decretal authority. I would not be giving this passage and this chapter their due, though, if I overlook the context of the text. You might want to follow along in Matthew 10. Uh, I'll summarize it uh, briefly. The point he is making here to the 12 whom he is sending out is, you are my disciples, and while you go about representing me, proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, I am giving you authority to cast out unclean spirits, and to heal the sick, and to raise the dead. 
Do not worry about your source of funding. And don't you worry if some don't want to hear you because they won't. Even if you do raise the dead in their presence. I'm actually sending you out as sheep among wolves. So be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And beware of men. For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings on account of me to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, don't you fret about what you need to say. I will give you the words to say in just the hour you need them. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. And when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next town. And when they don't hear you, shake off the dust from your feet and move on. Lather, rinse, repeat. Expect persecution. Expect division in families, even your families. After all, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. What people confess regarding me will be the dividing line for all humanity and every human relationship. Expect to lose your life for my sake. And if you don't take up your cross and follow me, then you aren't worthy of me. Did you expect a disciple to be above his teacher or a servant to be above his master? In sum, I tell you again, have no fear about any of this. Don't fear those who can kill you, and they will. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I will be with you through it all, and I won't forget you. If you acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. Remember, not even a cheap sparrow falls to the ground, apart from my will. And you, whose frame I knit in your mother's wombs after my image, you, whose days I have numbered when as yet there was none of them, you, whose sins I knew and bore on the cross, you, whose hairs on your head all are numbered, you are of more value than many sparrows. This supper is a memorial meal. Do this, Jesus said when he initiated this supper, in remembrance of me. Not only are we to remember his sacrifice in our stead, his payment of the debt we owe, but also we also, in a sense, remind God that we come to him in Christ, that our standing in his courts is on the basis of the broken body and spilt blood of the perfect lamb who came to take away the sins of the world. As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim to the world that salvation is found in none other. And we proclaim to God that we are his own, redeemed and ransomed by the sacrifice of our Savior. We have it on the best authority that acknowledging him, he will acknowledge us before his Father in heaven. So let us come to his feast 
And let us come with grateful hearts. Let us pray together. We rejoice, O Father, that the world is yours and that you, rather than chance or men, rule thoroughly and completely. Thank you for claiming us for yourself in Christ and holding us secure by your sovereign saving power. Nourish us today as we feed on the bread of heaven that you sent and that endures to eternal life. And amen. Please bow with me as we pray. Our Father, we are grateful that you have invited us to come and worship together, not only with these who surround us, but with the saints of every nation and age around your throne in heaven. You have received us for Christ's sake and have spread for us a table laden with true food and true drink, the flesh and blood of our Lord. Give us that life that you promised to those who partake of this living bread and abide in us as we abide in you. Help us this week to bear a true witness of you and protect us against every peril. For we pray in Christ's great name and amen. Amen. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. Amen. Amen.